I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. All opinions and discussions on the podcast are purely individual experience, so please consult a doctor or medical professional for more information. Welcome to the Shake It Up Show, a podcast in partnership with Shake It Up Australia Foundation for Parkinson's Research, where we speak to people whose lives have been impacted by Parkinson's disease and hear their stories. My name is Amy Louise Ruffle. I'm an actor, comedian, podcaster, and most importantly, a proud Shake It Up Australia ambassador in support of my dad who lives with Parkinson's. My guest this week completes a challenge every year to fundraise for Shake It Up in honour of her late father who lived with Parkinson's. This year she completed a trek to Mount Everest Base Camp 50 years after her father did the same trek. So to tell us all about that and so much more, please welcome Suzanne Cox. Hi Suzanne. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Now, just reading that, that is a magical sort of full circle moment to do that 50 years later. How did that come uh, uh, I actually found my dad's journal. So he'd, he'd kept a journal of his trek when he did it 50 years ago. Uh, and my dad was a really detailed man and, it, you know, he typed it up and everything and, uh, <laughs> and put it together in, in this nice little neat little book. Um, so yes, yeah, so I found it in the, in the garage when we were doing some cleaning out and I actually found it a few years ago and, uh, in the year when he had first passed away in 2020, uh, but obviously it was COVID and no one was traveling anywhere. So, uh, I remember thinking at the time, oh yeah, I'll probably do that one day. And actually that year for my challenge, uh, instead I ran the distance of Everest base cramp around Sydney cause I couldn't get anywhere. <laughs> Oh my so that was my first trip that I did, yeah. uh, and I did it in the same time that it takes you to do Everest Base Camp. So that's how it kind of started, you know, three years ago. Uh, and then I remember thinking at the time, oh, I'll definitely do Base Camp um, one year. And then just this year, kind of came across the journal again. And I thought oh, that'd be really cool to do it. Um, and I'd, I'd spoken to my family a little bit about it and said that I'd really love to do it. And uh, then my brother got it for my birthday. <laughs> Uh, actually wow. probably the, the flights to Nepal so then there was no turning back <laughs> yeah it's a gift that's a bit of a punishment as well isn't it because it's like well now right. we do it <laughs> I know and he was sick enough because I'd, I'd asked him to do it with me and he was like oh I can't get the time off work and things like that but here have a ticket <laughs> wow what a gift <laughs> it was a great gift, a great gift best gift of the birthday <laughs> oh, absolutely maybe we go back a bit because obviously these challenges that you've been doing um are pretty phenomenal but if we go back to maybe the the genesis of your parkinson's journey with your dad so when was yeah, he yeah. first diagnosed oh my dad's journey was a little bit complicated so uh he actually was first diagnosed with a condition called primary progressive aphasia uh, which is a condition where somebody loses their language. And uh, at that point in time, everything else seemed to be okay. It was just that he lost lost an, uh, the language because of degeneration in his brain in the language centre of his brain. So um, he kind of gradually lost his ability to speak. Uh, and then, 
we're not really sure at what order things happened and what kind of timeline there is because once somebody learns loses their ability to speak it becomes very hard to obviously communicate and figure out what's going on from their point of view so uh that's kind of how it all started um so he had he had lost his language and had lost his ability to understand what we were saying to him okay. as well yeah. by the time that he started to exhibit symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, we think it was probably when he first started showing symptoms, maybe about three or four years before he passed away. Um, so he passed away in 2020 and then uh, a few years before that was probably some of the first symptoms. Uh, and his was a pretty pretty fast progression of the disease uh, in comparison to I think a lot of other people's. So yeah. Uh, he, yeah, he, he did, he actually, which is, I always like to tell people because it's, you know, you think of Parkinson's and you think the shakes and tremors, uh, but my dad actually never had a tremor. He had probably a very, very small, like sort of a tapping of his thumb, um, to start with. Um, and that almost completely disappeared, you know, after a, after a couple of months. And, uh, then for him, there was never any tremor at all. So, yeah, so we we probably got the diagnosis then not long after we noticed that that first little sign, and uh, then he he went downhill pretty rapidly from there. Yeah, it's amazing with the I guess like the inability to communicate, and then not exhibiting that traditional sort of um, pop culture symptom of Parkinson's, the tremor. Yeah. It's quite phenomenal that you're yeah. able, to, I guess, even find that out and um, get his diagnosis. Yeah. And, you know, I work in exercise physiology and we didn't, we didn't even talk about anything to do with other symptoms to do with Parkinson's disease in, uh, in any of my journey in university or study or anything like that. Uh, so, you know, I think it was a real awakening point for me in that there's just so much that people don't know. And I guess that's probably a big part of why I do what I do to create a bit more awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly isn't what um, people's sort of perception of it is unless you've had a personal experience with it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, the tremors can be a part of it. But more often than not, it seems like it's not a part of people's experience yeah. <laughs> or the medication. That's right. Yeah. To help that side of it. And it's the other symptoms that the medication um, can't be as assisting with. Yeah, that's right. And then the more you look into it, you realize there's so much more than the shakes and, uh, you know, and you find out more and more as you as you do your own research. So as a family, obviously, there's two really huge things that you're dealing with there because the aphasia, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but that's a really big challenge in itself. So how did you guys go at that time? How did you support your dad through that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's always really shocking, I think, for the family when it first happens, as I'm sure it is for the individual as well. Um, I think there's definitely an element of denial for everybody um, you know, it's just a really hard diagnosis to accept, you know, you, when you, my dad was incredibly fit and incredibly healthy and, uh, you know, he was, he was the person doing marathons and try trekking Everest base camp. He's, you know, he wasn't somebody that we expected that would ever get something like this. So yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely something that was confronting to start with. Um, but I do remember, my mum taking my dad by the hands at one point and just saying to him, we're going to look after you all the way. And, you know, that, I think that was probably something that we all just agreed on from the start that, that we would do that. Mm -hmm. 
How did you take care of yourself while looking after him? Because obviously sounds like you're a very tight-knit family. That's what you all want to do. But it still does take a toll being in that caregiver role and also, I guess, seeing someone that you care about going through such a, a such a huge challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the awareness that I always like to talk about now is, you know, everybody else looking out for the carers. And I remember talking to talking about it with my brother and my brother actually lives in the UK. So he was very distant for, uh, you know, physically distant, not emotionally, but physically distant for a lot of the journey. And, uh, you know, he would, he would always be saying to me, what do you need? You know, what, what can I do to help? You know, is what, what things can I get? What can I do to support you guys? And, and I, I just remember saying, cause my mum was probably the major carer for my dad. Um, cause we kept him at home right until the end. And I remember saying to my brother, you know, dad's fine. Dad is great. He's so well looked after because mum did such a great job of making sure that he had everything that he needed and that he was loved and cared for. And, you know, I, I remember saying that the person that we actually need to look out for is mum because she's the one that needs the support and the extra, uh, and the extra care and the extra love because it's so hard on a carer to do that full time. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, 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 I did as much as I could to help care for him as well. But I think that primary carer really goes through a lot, just, oh gosh, emotionally, physically, from the moment that they wake up in the morning. And it's, you know, I, I think of what we, what we did on a daily basis for dad, just to, uh, to get him through a day. And he was, he was actually very, very easy to care for, you know, towards the end, you know, he was always gentle and trying to help you out and <laughs> even though he wasn't fully aware of everything that was going on um he was he was what i would describe a very easy person to care for but it's still an adult and so that's a large body that you know you're trying to do all of those caring acts for that you know can sometimes he wasn't a big man but can still a, a still a big physical load to to be able to care for that so you know my mum probably did really struggle to to find her own space and find her own time. And um, dad passed away during COVID. And then we came out of lockdowns and all of those sorts of things. And I remember just thinking how much of a different lifestyle it became for my mum once we had gotten out of lockdown and things like that, because she almost didn't really leave the house in that whole time. Yeah, because we were worried about him getting COVID and then passing something on to him if we went out too much. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a really massive load on a carer. So I think, you know, as much as we want to do as much as possible for the person, I think the rest of the community, let's do our best to look after the carers as well because they need it just as much as the person suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Because And both of those things can be true, that both of those people need the care. And I think it can be really hard because it it can be awkward to sort of admit that it's a challenge because, you know, you love the person, you want to do it. But um, recognizing that, like you said, physically, just the, the labor of taking care of someone is a lot, but it's the emotional side of it too, that obviously you're seeing big changes. Their life is sort of a bit on hold. Um, the change of identity that now your partner, you're having to be like a, a caring figure for them. There's so much going on in that time. And then you lump a pandemic and not having, you know, that normal interaction and community support. Your mum really, like, it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely. And, you know, I'd, I'd actually been 
made redundant from my job just before oh, COVID gosh. started. It's actually it's actually perfect because okay. I, moved, I moved home with my dad. Yes. Okay. Lovely. Um, and so I was actually able to be there with him for, you know, the last months that he was alive, which I think, wow, just what a blessing in disguise yeah. that, you know, if I'd been in a different, even just a different living situation, I might not have even been able to see them for that whole duration of lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, I feel, I do feel really grateful that I was able to to be home and be with him for those, those last bits of, of his time on this earth. And um you know, even the, doing the bits and pieces I would do of caring for him, it'd be, just be sometimes that you, you're doing an act of care, whether it's cleaning him or helping him with his dinner, and sometimes you'd be fine and then sometimes, you know, I could be just helping him eat his dinner and I'd just find myself crying while I was just feeding him his, his dinner. And, yeah, I think, it, you know, just kind of owning how hard it is as well can sometimes be really beneficial for you when you're going through that. Totally. Yeah. Realistic that some days it'll be okay and that you can bring the the positivity and the energy and all of that. And then other days you'd be like, no, I really wish it wasn't like this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, it is maybe, hard. <laughs> yeah, it is hard. Maybe a weird question. And if it um it's not something that you can answer, then don't worry. But how did, how did you and your mum go, I guess, post your, your dad passing away, obviously that is its own um, trauma and grief to deal with. But given that, yeah. um, particularly for your mom, so much of her time and day and identity was tied up yeah. in him and then all of a sudden your days open up, there's not that person there, you don't have that role. Was that a really hard grief and transition too? Yeah, I, I think so. I think my, my mom actually still works. She's 71. So she runs her own. <laughs> she runs her own business as a bookkeeper, uh, and she actually continued to work through through that whole time. Wow. Um, and she loves it. She loves the you know the brain stimulation and being able to interact with different people. She did all of it from home long before COVID actually hit. So uh, you know, I think I think that was really important for her to have something outside of that, and I think that probably helped with with that transition. But Definitely there was a, a transition period probably for both of us and I imagine even more so for my mum of almost just these extra hours in in your day and it's this weird transition of, you know, that you don't want them to not be here anymore but at the same time there's a lot more freedom because now all of this extra time has has come into your day that you didn't have before and mm-hmm. just simple things like you know we always we we always wanted to make sure that we still included dad in everything and uh we didn't you know we would never go for a dinner out or anything like that and not bring him um but you know taking him out for a dinner you know he was quite debilitated by the time he got towards the end so then you know just even walking out of the house trying to get him into the car that could that's like half an hour journey sometimes trying to make all of that happen and you know yeah. our driveway was slant and so then you'd have to try and get him in the car without him hitting his head and you know he's obviously less mobile and then it's that same transition out of the car once you get to the restaurant uh you know maneuvering a wheelchair getting him into the restaurant uh it, there's there's a big transition when all of that that changes and it's it's a really conflicting feeling because it's wow this is so much easier to do things 
but gosh, I'm sad that you're not here at the same same time. Yes. Um, and then there's a double grief as well. I think with conditions like Parkinson's and, uh, you know, my dad had a lot of cognitive decline as well. So, um, and obviously then losing his language, you kind of, you don't just grieve when they pass away. You've just grieved about 20 steps along the way, as I'm sure a lot of people in the community can relate to in that, you know, when they lose every little step or every little transition that you go through, you grieve a little bit and and it's, it's always a process to accept that. So yeah, it's a, it's just complicated grief. <laughs> I, would, I would say so complicated. Very complicated. And you're right that like there are sort of micro griefs along the way as things change. And then there's also like, <laughs> there can be like guilt of grieving that because you're still ultimately just I'm very grateful that they're still here, which obviously you are, but it's trying to find the gaps to allow the reality of like, but there is challenges to them still being here. And I, you know, feel really sad that dad has to deal with this right now. And so it's how to grieve, but still be happy that they're still here. It's, it's a constant and some days that's not even part of the equation. And then other days, like you said, you know, you're doing the same activity, but with tears in your eyes. That's it, yeah. And then there's a, there's a complication of, you know, the grief of of what you're feeling, but you also don't want to show them that you're feeling that grief because forever how hard it is for me, it's 10 times harder for him. Totally. So you're trying to pretend as though you're okay, yeah. even though you're grieving, even though they're grieving and then your mum's grieving and your brother's <laughs> grieving and like how dare I be upset like it should you know it's all it's all messy but I think like the more you talk about it like that's so realistic like it would be nuts to not be affected by it and almost like trying to see grief as like (laughs) a weird gift of like I have something that I care about so much how lucky to grieve something could because if there was no grief that would be really sad because it would mean I didn't care yes yes definitely and then the you know the grief continues after they're gone as well because then you <laughs> then you think oh gosh you know sometimes you can be happy about something and then you think oh gosh but I shouldn't be happy he's not here to witness that and yeah uh, it continues <laughs> it never ends there's no right answer <laughs> that's right yeah so is this when the um the challenges sort of started when your your dad did pass away or were they going before tell me the timeline there yeah, they started the, my dad died in August, 2020. So I did my first challenge uh, at the end of that year in November, 2020. And then I do it the same time of, of year every year. So uh, I always pick a challenge that uh, is something that my dad did in the past. As I mentioned, he was very fit, very, very strong, always doing a thousand different adventures since he was a, a young boy. So uh, I, yeah, I, I always pick a challenge that uh, that's something that he's done in the past. So, oh. yeah, so 2020 was when I did the, I, I ran the distance of Everest Base Camp around Sydney. Uh, 2021, I did uh, I did an ultra marathon through uh, the Blue Mountains of Sydney. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was called the Six Foot Track, which was, um, which was a marathon, an ultra marathon that he had done actually quite a few times. He'd done that one a few times. Uh, he does an ultra marathon a few times. That's incredible. That's so he does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so and actually, that one 
that one was a it was meant to be a 45 kilometer ultra marathon but we took a bit of a wrong turn <laughs> so it ended up being uh, closer to 50 kilometers um, oh my yeah. goodness what a disaster <laughs> yes that was a long five kilometers at the end there I'll bet. Uh, 2022 uh, my dad had done 19 city to surfs in the time since he had moved to Sydney from the UK so I did 19 days in a row of 19 city to surfs uh, well the distance of city to surf around Sydney Oh my, I thought you were going to say, so I did a city to surf in honour, but no, of course you did 19 of them. You two are absolutely I like to do something a little bit extreme because I, well, I always just think, I like to challenge myself. Firstly, I've, I've worked in exercise all my life, so I really enjoy that. I'm one of those strange people. Uh, but I always think, you know, in those last years of my dad's life when he was really, really affected by Parkinson's disease, gosh, he would have been loved to have been able to do what I'm able to do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try not to ever forget that. And any time that I have the opportunity to move, I do move because there's so many people with Parkinson's disease that would be loved to just be able to do what I can do so easily on a daily basis. So yeah. uh, I choose to pick something that's a little bit extreme. I also think uh it helps with my fundraising yes (laughs) I picked something that's a little bit more a little bit more crazy and people keep saying to me every time I do something in the in a in a new challenge so this year was the Everest base camp and they're like well you won't top this one and I think you just wait (laughs) yeah your biggest mistake was you started at such a high bar and so it just keeps bigger and bigger (laughs) but you're right that for fundraising it's like okay it feels hard not to support something that is so ambitious and um taxing but I also like what you said about I guess the perspective of being able to move your body in the way that you want to because that is absolutely a a privilege and while we can't let you know do the things while you can that's it, yeah. And I think none of us know what the future holds, whether it's Parkinson's or something else. So while I'm fit, strong and able, then I will absolutely make the most of that. <laughs> so how did you enjoy the actual base camp experience? Oh, my gosh, it was amazing. I can highly recommend it to anyone who's even remotely thinking about it. If you think you can't do it, you absolutely can. doesn't matter how fast you do it. Uh, everybody has the the chance that they can give it at least a good shot. Um, I think preparation and uh, training beforehand is is also really key to make it more mm-hmm. enjoyable. But gosh, it was, oh, I always describe it to people that ask me as it was both terrifying and amazing all in one because <laughs> it was so hard to breathe most of the time. Wow. <laughs> Even at nighttime, you know, you'd sort of, just be lying on your back. And if you wanted to, especially when you're at the really, really high altitudes, if you just rolled over onto your side, you know, it takes you five or seven breaths to get your breath back just from rolling over. Oh my goodness. High altitudes. So, uh, you know, altitude affects everybody differently. I probably actually found it harder at nighttime than during the day. I could sort of kind of just got used to just one foot in front of the other as I was walking up the hills. Um, but nighttime was probably when I noticed it noticed it more Mm -hmm. Uh, but it also just reminded me as well you know gosh I feel like my dad was just constantly fighting for breath when he was just doing his day-to-day and I thought you know what if he can handle this daily 
it, you know, for him, rolling over in bed was a struggle sometimes and would leave him out of breath. So, uh, you know, I can handle it for a couple of weeks was was my attitude. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's something strangely exciting about having to fight that challenge. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm sure. Like there, there's the physical demand of it, but also, yeah, knowing he's done it, knowing that you're doing it for a fundraising cause, like there's a lot of things going on that would have been spurring you on in those those tough moments. Yeah, because I had his diary, I could – you know, the, the base camp track hasn't really changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, probably the amount of people that do it and the amount of rubbish and things there are has changed, but the trek in itself has really not changed that much. So he did a slightly different route because my dad being his, my dad didn't get a flight into Lukla where you start the trek. He walked there from Kathmandu. Oh, <laughs> of course <laughs> he was a Slightly longer journey. Uh-huh. Um, but <laughs> once I found where I was at on his journey, then, you know, you, you're almost following identical route. And so there was a couple of points where, you know, he'd mentioned a particular spot that he stopped or, a you know, a Buddhist monastery that he'd went into and, uh, you know, and I, and I would be looking at the monastery and then I'd ask my Sherpa and I say, "Is this how long has this monastery been here for? And he said, oh, hundreds of years. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the exact monastery that my dad stepped foot in. And uh, yeah, so that it was it was just amazing. And then I got to base camp, and uh, and I just had this really overwhelming feeling of him being there. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, whatever you believe in, and whoever you believe in, uh, there was my dad's spirit there for certain. And I just felt him, and I felt his pride for me achieving it. And I just almost got quite emotional and then I couldn't breathe. So I had to bring myself back together. <laughs> <laughs> then you had to say, dad, I'm going to need you to leave me alone. Cause I do need to breathe right now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just pull it together. I just need to need to focus on my breath. Um, but How yeah, amazing that was, is that, that in like, cool. in a world where everything has changed from 50 years to now, like you'd be scarce to find anything that is still the same, that you got to go on that journey and like map it out and yeah, it would really feel like he was there with you because you're reading his words. Yes, yes. And I was able to reflect on it each night because I had the words there in front of me. And um, I actually wrote my own journal because I thought, well, I, I've got a little niece that's <laughs> three years old. And I thought, well, one day she might want to follow my footsteps. And yeah, she she's going to do the 100th anniversary for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel, I mean, so great that he he kept that journal because I don't think it would have felt anywhere near as special if I didn't have uh, didn't have his footsteps to follow. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's so magical! And obviously, it was to raise money as well. So, like, double yeah. amazing trip there. Um, I also, before I let you go, wanted to talk to you about the new course that you've started that is to help fitness professionals learn about um, exercise for people with Parkinson's. So tell me about that. Where did it come? I'm guessing it's probably because, like you said, you didn't learn in university much about the nuances of Parkinson's disease. So what's the course about? Yeah, so uh, it's it's really a course that's a, a big passion project that, I'd I'd thought about for ages and ages and then I do a lot of presenting as an exercise physiologist at different conferences and every time I, I would always present on Parkinson's disease because I wanted to keep getting the message 
out there. And every time I presented, people would be saying to me, well, where can I learn more? Where can I learn more? Because I can tell you, as someone who's worked with most conditions, nothing really makes a difference to a condition from exercise as much as it does for Parkinson's disease. So for anyone out there that wants to know what's the best thing that I can do to really tackle this condition that I've got or help somebody that you know who's got Parkinson's disease, absolutely the number one thing you can do is get them moving and moving in the right way because I tried to help my dad with exercise um, and I think it made, you know, a small difference. But at the time I didn't know that there was a really specific way that you can move that just combats so much of the condition, especially if you start it really, really early on. Um, So, you know, it it was all the information that I wish I'd known in earlier stages of diagnosis for my dad. So um, put it all together with a friend who works in the, in the fitness space as well. Uh, we put that, we started putting that all together and uh, put our own little spins on it uh, with different ways that we like to do things. And, um, and yeah, and we launched it in New Zealand in uh, November this year when we were at a conference and, uh, and yeah, we, we just want to get the get it out there as much as we can, so that more and more people who do work in the exercise space can um, help as many people with the condition as they possibly can, and um, give the information that we definitely wish we knew sooner. Yeah, absolutely. So, how do I guess like professionals get that information, and then is it something that an individual can get access to or take to their exercise? Because it sounds like it's a great resource. How do yeah we- yeah. Look, it's still very early stages, so it's probably a bit more of a watch this space because I would just love to be able to give as many resources as I can to even just the general population. So at this point in time, it's it's really just a course for fitness professionals mm-hmm. um, that do. We're happy for other people to do it. If they're not a fitness professional, by all means, jump on in. Um, but that's sort of where we've, we've targeted it towards. Um, uh, but, yeah, we, we're sort of further down the track we will look at developing different resources just for the general population so they can get as much information as they can as well. Amazing. So where do those fitness professionals go um, to find out more about the course? Yeah, uh, probably at the moment because it's still kind of getting up and running with all of our our, our different ways to find us and things like that. Uh, probably the best place to go is to look for us on Instagram and we're Adapt Education Oz, just A-U-S on the end. Uh, and you can get in contact with us there and find out some more information of how to enroll in the course. Sounds so good. Well, we will, like you said, watch this space and not only for the the course uh, progress, but for whatever bananas activity you take on next year. I can't wait to see what physical heights you go to. Um, But thank (laughs) you so much. Pardon? (laughs) got a short list already <laughs> oh my goodness well yes cannot wait to hear we'll get you back on to talk more about it next year but thanks so yeah. much Suze, for your time today pleasure thank you for having me thanks for listening to today's episode shake it up australia funds groundbreaking australian research that aims to slow stop and cure parkinson's disease and they need your help To support Shake It Up's vision of a world without Parkinson's, head to shakeitup.org.au forward slash podcast. Together, we can find a cure.